Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. want to uh, start the the talk off with uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon <clears throat> Calvin is uh, saying in the first frame with a big smile on his face <clears throat> here I am happy and content next frame but not euphoric third frame I'm no longer happy I'm frustrated my day is ruined last frame I need to quit thinking while I'm ahead I wanted to uh, talk on a topic that would be relevant both to uh, people who are continuing for uh, the next month and those that are um, will soon be back in uh, their hopefully not so busy lives, but their daily lives. And uh, I wanted to, uh, I decided to talk about contentment and the power of contentment which is um, an essential attitude that we can cultivate both on the cushion and off the cushion. In uh, the Dhammapada, the, the Buddha says, contentment is the greatest wealth. Contentment is the greatest wealth. In the Pali, the word is santuti, S-A-N-T-U-T-T-H-I, contentment. And it touches on a number of different wholesome states that we've been talking about and you've been developing within your own practice. Sally gave uh, a wonderful talk on renunciation, on nekama, on the the power of letting go and on how that's the really that's the third noble truth one if if the if the cause of suffering the second noble truth is grasping the third noble truth is letting go and there is freedom what is letting go but um knowing that we have enough and letting go of the the, the drive or the, the insecurity or the hankering for something else that says, uh, I need this to make me happy. And contentment is also um, directly connected with the uh, equanimity practice that I've been doing these last few days. A real feeling of Okayness, it's like this. 
this is how it is and not having contention with things are things as they are and out of that comes a real sense of ease and peace and freedom and uh, a complete letting go and it also touches on some other wholesome qualities which I'll I'll mention uh, later on in the talk <clears throat> but I I first want to uh, put it in the context of our practice. Um, it, it might seem a bit paradoxical that here we are really putting in, having put in a month or uh, about to put in a second month of practice in a, a very earnest, sincere way. And we have a, an inspiring vision in our hearts or in our minds that keeps us putting in the time. So not to confuse contentment with laziness or complacency. And in fact, um, the Buddha in one discourse, he says... um, find it here. Two things I came to know well. Not to be content with good states so far achieved and to be unremitting in one's commitment to liberation. So I want to have us explore how we can be both content and yet not content in the sense of just kicking back and saying, okay, well, I put my time in and I'll just, uh, I'll just trust. I'm going in the right direction and uh, cross my fingers. <laughs> that, that won't work. It does take uh, wise effort and a deep commitment to do this practice and there is the Buddha the Bodhisattva Buddha to be after learning deep states of concentration and um, and bliss and each each time he learned from one of his two teachers before he became enlightened and saying um, is this all that you can teach me and each time the, the teacher saying, yes, I've learned everything, I've taught you everything that I know. Please come in and uh, sit up here with me and we can teach together. And he said, no, there, there's more. And he was not going to be uh, giving up the quest until he became fully enlightened. But the way to full liberation is this coming to complete rest, opening up to things just as they are when you can, and uh, not with resigning, not with bargaining, not with hoping, but it's an attitude of complete connection 
to this present moment that says, it's enough. And in that deep relaxation with wakefulness, we can open up to the highest peace possible. So here's just something to keep in mind as I I explore this with you, that if you have a really strong um, inspiration for practice, this is, this is your greatest asset if you have a, a strong inspiration for whatever it is, whatever your clear comprehension of purpose that uh, Carol spoke of the other night, whatever it is that truly inspires you, that fuels your practice. That fuels your um, willingness to open up to things just as they are and to completely um, let go. And to not be just content with feeling good. This is from my, my teacher, um, one of my teachers, uh, Punjaji, who I've, I mentioned uh, earlier. He says, uh, the desire for freedom is a mysterious desire that you cannot ignore. It's always there. This is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall. The desire for freedom is intense. And when you hear it, you must respond to it. And when you respond, this desire will bring you home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled in this life. when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're saying that life is giving us, this is how I take it, life is giving us what we need in every moment to wake up and to become free, or to open up to freedom. So <clears throat> we have to really explore just what does it mean to have contentment? How can I consciously cultivate it in my practice? In our world of craving, it's, it's so strong that even though the Buddha talked about this 2,500 years ago, you know, watch out for how the, the embers of desire are fanned and run us in our our life. Now it's cultivated to a high art. Like I read that, uh, share with you that that ad, the gold shivers. Remember that. Well, this is the the way that our society is uh, is set up to run and be successful. I want to quote um, an economist, Victor Lebeau. Uh, very famous and respected economist um, writing just after World War II uh, as we entered a whole new age of uh, the consumer society. He says, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. 
that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. That's, that's why we're called consumers. <laughs> we're not called human beings. We are consumer units. And so to, to really understand how the game is played and how ev- all the forces are conspiring for us to not be content, not only in our culture, but also in, uh, in, the Asian, in Asian cultures, which unfortunately uh, all, too, uh, all too easily have emulated or looked up to our culture as being the, um, the most advanced and the way to real happiness. And there's a very poignant story that's, um, that's quite uh, striking about um, something that happened in Thailand in the, uh, in the 70s uh, after the Vietnam, or during the Vietnam War and, uh, and, and shortly after that uh, you know, we were ve- the U.S. was very uh, had had great interest in in Thailand as as an ally for various reasons, and they wanted to make sure that Thailand you know didn't go communist. So they were encouraged um, greatly to become a consumer society like us, and the the plan was that um, they wanted to eliminate contentment from Buddhist teachings because Buddhism is, is the, the religion in, in Thailand, as I'm sure all of us, all of you know. And so there was um, a concerted strategy of eliminating contentment from the teachings that was just about to be implemented and fulfilled, um, and the the uh, the monks. Here, I can uh, read it from uh, Ajahn Amaro's. There's a book called Hooked. By the way, it's a great anthology by Stephanie Casa, and uh, Ajahn Amaro's got a great essay in there. Uh, in their drive to, to encourage productivity and consumerism, the political powers regarded moderation and contentment as obstacles to the program. Sad to say, most of the monastic community acquiesced to this request, being culturally conditioned to not cause conflict and to maintain the status quo. However, there was one um, prominent master, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who... Guy and Carol uh, spent uh, quite some time uh, in in robes with in Thailand, and who was greatly revered and respected, but also very courageous and not uh, not bending to any authority other than the Buddhas. And uh, he said. Um, He came right out and openly challenged the politicians, asking them if they felt they were wiser than the Buddha. 
saying, he said, surely the Buddha would never have extolled qualities so highly and universally regarded if they were something that could possibly be harmful. And by his own uh, strength of character and respect, um, he reversed that plan. You imagine taking out contentment from the Buddha's teachings because it's, it's subversive to our culture and the culture that they've tried to um, get so deeply rooted in Thailand. Because as, as unpleasant it is, as it is, wanting does contract the mind. It's, a, it's the second noble truth. There's something very seductive about it, isn't there? It's so interesting how the game is played. You know, it, I sometimes think it could have been a whole different life here on planet Earth where you get what you need and that's enough. I mean, it it is that way for many species. You You get what you need. Okay, now I go hibernate for the winter or whatever it is. But we're wired up differently where you get what you need and it feels so good that you want to get more to get that good feeling. And so we get hooked, as Stephanie's book says, we get hooked on that pleasant feeling of more, of gratification, of the end of desire in the gratification of our, our wants. And then we say, okay, well, if that felt good, what's the next thing I can do? And then there we are, one moment after another, being pulled by our desires. There's a... Uh, an exchange, uh, uh, the Brahmin king Saka says, uh, asks the Buddha, what is it that chains us? And the Buddha says, attachment to preferences. But here we are um, going against the stream and seeing through the game, little by little. However, here you are spending a month looking at how desire works, You'd think by now you get, oh, okay, desire, a trap. I don't need to go there. Anybody has arrived at that place? Little by little we're learning. But just as a little exercise just to play around with to to show you uh, in in a visceral way, I'd like you just close your eyes for a moment and just sit here like you're so used to doing, and relax. You might feel the breath, listen to sounds, just open to the moment as it is. Notice how that feels. Now think of something that you want. Think of something you really want. Have it in your mind, in your heart. An image. Notice how it feels. 
does it feel in your body, in the mind? Take a breath. And now come back to the breath in this moment and perhaps um, notice something in this moment right now that's here, that's in your actual experience to appreciate. Maybe the fact that you're alive or whatever. See if you can become aware of something in your experience to appreciate. Notice how that feels. You notice the difference? You can open your eyes. It's right there. So every time you find yourself hooked by something, to just notice that as, as often happens, and it's come up in interviews uh, with a number of people, the phenomenon that most of you are aware of, the, the Vipassana romance, the, the VR, right? I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but when it's here, it's really so um, informative. On, on one retreat, this is one of my first retreats, this is like in, in the 70s, um, I was down at Yucca Valley and there were a few, uh, it was a big retreat, like 150 or, or more people, and I had, you know, the VR syndrome and there was clearly somebody who really was appealing to me. And there was another one who was almost, not quite. <laughs> and there was a third and a fourth. Right? <laughs> and it was very clear, the, the ranking, you know, you know. You know, oh, there's number three going by. Right? This is true confessions. And um, what happened was after one week, um, number one left the retreat. Right. I, at first, I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, the, the zafu was gone and the zabitan, the, the, the clothes, the shawl and everything. <gasps> and I was um, bereft for, oh, maybe uh, you know, an hour or two. Uh, and then what happened was um, everybody else moved up a notch. <laughs> I didn't keep on thinking about that person. And it was so clear that it was desire that was just looking for a place to land. You know, like a little kid. I want, I want, I want, oh, I want that. You know? So you've got to have your sense of humor about this. But if you do find yourself caught in that syndrome, to really examine, oh, what is it like? What does it feel like in there? No judgment, it's just part of how we're wired up. That wanting is so deeply ingrained. <clears throat> in, the, uh, in some of the, the discourses the Buddha talks about contentment, 
in uh, the Blessing Sutta, the Mandala, uh, the Mangala Sutta, I read from earlier, to be reverent and humble, content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. To be content and grateful, that's a blessing supreme. And in the Metta Sutta, where it says, uh, let them be humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Ah, that's where a heart of loving kindness radiates out, to be contented and easily satisfied. And it can also be so easily activated by um, the people that we care about. As soon as we want something from them, is a whole, a whole different feeling that gets in the way. I don't, I don't think I did this. Here's a, another little exercise that comes to me. Uh, think of somebody, um, think of somebody you really care about, that you have a lot of metta for. And just uh, see them, wishing, wish them well. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you feel my love for you. And now for a moment, think of it, of wanting something from them. Hoping they don't disappoint you. Notice how that feels. And again, take a breath and go back to just wishing them well. See them smiling, not wanting anything from them other than well-wishing. Oh, may you be happy. May you really be peaceful. And then you can open your eyes. You notice the difference? Just in a moment, that love turns to contraction and wanting and it cuts off that beautiful wholesome state. When we don't want, then people want to move into our space. So how does this work? Are we supposed to never want? Is that it? Just besides wanting to deepen our practice, are we supposed to just let go of, of having all of our, a, any kind of desires satisfied? No. It's, it's not, you know, your body wants food and water and wants, uh, wants wholesome things. There's a difference in desire. I, I don't know if it was mentioned in some of the, in any of the talks. There's a difference about the desire that's, that's a thirst, tanha, and desire, wholesome desires that are not causing suffering, that chanda. There's that desire, tanha is a kind of craving, is an incompleteness. And then we have lots of wholesome desires, things that we want to do, like to learn to love more or become a, 
um, a, a good person, realize our full potential, develop our skills, enjoy life. So it doesn't mean that you've got to be continually mm, depriving yourself, but it's important to see the, the difference between continually getting your desires fulfilled and knowing just the right amount. And this is, um, this is a teaching from uh, the Venerable uh, P.A. Paiuto on uh, the right amount, what's called moderation <clears throat> or matanuta. Moderation means knowing the optimum, optimum amount, how much is just right. It's an awareness of that optimum point where the enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. The optimum point or point of balance is attained when we experience satisfaction at having answered the need for quality of life or well-being. Consumption, when attuned to the middle way, must be balanced to an appropriate amount to the attainment of well-being rather than to the satisfaction of desires. Thus, in contrast to maximum consumption leading to maximum satisfaction, more is better, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. You know that sweet spot, just enough. And that in itself takes a lot of mindfulness. You know, have you noticed going through the food line? You know, and if they serve something really good, right? And then there's the question, well, should I put a lot on my plate now or should I, should I be moderate and maybe go back for seconds or whatever? And it's a whole... Um, it's a whole very profound issue in practice. On, uh, on, on one retreat, it was a Thanksgiving retreat uh, at an early, uh, no, it was uh, 1981, a three-month course. And Thanksgiving, they used to just have a blowout. They still, it is a special meal, but they used to just, at IMS, go all out and have like, you know, all kinds of, food and lots of servings and, um, and like five different pies, right? <laughs> it, it was like, you know, over the top, right? And it was amazing on that. And I used to eat pretty mindfully. That one Thanksgiving, it was one of the most unpleasant meals <laughs> I, I ever ate because there I was putting all this food in my mouth thinking about the desserts on that table, you know. I couldn't really enjoy it there. So to just really see, oh, satisfaction coinciding with true well-being, this, this is an art and, uh, and a practice. The Buddha realized how important this was and... Uh, gave a, a discourse, actually, this is interesting, 
to his um, monastic community shortly after he was enlightened, and he gave some of these guidelines. He said, patient endurance is the supreme practice for burning up unwholesome states, restraining all harmful speech, hurting none, being self-possessed in the way of virtue, knowing the right amount in taking food, having a secluded place for sleeping and meditation, making efforts to practice with a pure heart. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas, knowing the right amount in taking food. And the interesting thing was that he gave this discourse, everybody in, uh, in the audience that he was giving this discourse to was fully enlightened. So it kind of, you know, highlights that even if you're fully enlightened, you might not realize how much is enough. He says, pay attention now, you know. I know you're an arhat, but still, take a look. Don't take more than you need, right? It's a little comforting, isn't it, you know? So... um, this wanting, <clears throat> which fuels our discontent, it's, it's, it's this, this idea that, okay, well, this moment is as it is, but maybe there's something out there that will be better. What's out there? The hidden promise, that's what I used to call it in my, in my mind, the hidden promise in the next moment. I know there's got to be something better. This is good. Is there anything better? And what we, we find ourselves doing is not only wanting more stuff, but wanting more experience. And so we are filling ourselves with experience, thinking that maybe the next one will do it for us want to read to you from my favorite writer whose name is Mark Morford so I don't get like 10 notes saying what, what's his name M-O-R-F-O-R-D uh, who writes every Wednesday on, uh, on the internet your terrifying word of the day is microtasking And it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? This advice column said. Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, 
or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? (laughs) It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram it all open, all into open white space, if you can cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning that I read in an article in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the past 30,000 years up to 2003. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. 48-hour period, more data was created than all of humanity in the past 30,000 years up to just a few years ago. So, you want to have it all? Good luck. (laughs) Goes on. I'll just read a little more because it's so good. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, or waving to the closed-captioned TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit there in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do ten things in an hour, or one thing in ten. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day, and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as you breathe, as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. (laughs) Mark Morford. If you Google microtasking, Mark Morford. Here's Peace Pilgrim, that wonderful, wise sage, American sage who lived in the last half of the 20th century. She says, if your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, 
And if you are obedient to the laws which govern this universe, then your life is full and good, but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you're doing more than is right for you to do, more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. So how can we practice this? How can we play around with it in, in, our, in our practice? Just noticing how we topple forward into the, the next moment. And perhaps many of you have gotten in touch with that as the end of the retreat draws near. It's so... This is such a rich part of the retreat for those people who are leaving. Not to think, oh, it's over, silence is ended. You can learn so much as you topple forward. And those who are staying can learn so much as the, the shifting of the energy um, informs and affects your practice. But... As far as the leaning forward, here's a little bit of a, um, a practice that you might try in your life. I don't, I don't think I did this with you. Just imagine looking forward to something. Probably many people here are, are looking forward to uh, what life will be at home. Maybe some of you are trying to put on the brakes. We're looking forward to your next retreat already. <laughs> and those who are staying... Think of something you're looking forward to, maybe looking forward to all of this stirring up, finally ending, and then getting back your peace of of mind, okay? But whatever, get something in your mind that you look forward to, okay? And have have an image of it, how good it's going to feel. And now um, you can open up your eyes if you'd like. And I'd like you to imagine it's right in front of you, just out of your reach. And play along with me so you get the full experience. And imagine if you reach far enough and touch it, you'll have instant gratification. Okay, what you really want is just almost there. So keep your butt on the cushion or the chair. And I'd like you to reach forward now. Come on, really go for it. Come on. It's almost there. (laughs) And now realize it's not going to happen. And very slowly, slowly let your body come back and feel the difference. Feel the difference. Between this and this, this is where peace is found. Not there. But we get hooked again and again. Every moment you have the capacity to come back and remember, oh, it's happening right now. It's all here right now. And what we've been practicing for this last month, I hope you're starting to get the possibility 
of seeing this moment as complete, just as it is. The way is perfect like vast space, says the third Zen patriarch. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Allowing it all to be here right now, just the way it is, this is where peace is to be found. But we can even have a kind of ideal around that peace being the absence of stimulation. That if this moment is a little bit crowded and um, there's some unpleasant aspects of it, that I need to get out of this moment so that I can get a better moment of real peace. And that is a doomed strategy because the more you want out of this moment when this is how it is, the more you are toppling forward, hoping against hope, and in that contraction of mind and heart, you will never find peace. And this can sometimes happen particularly after a very sweet, delicious meditation period. Have you seen it? Mmm, that was so good. I finally arrived. How do I get there again? And I I had this experience. It was was really a a, a profound um, teaching for me when uh, I was around uh, Punjaji. Um, and I, I asked him, uh, I asked him to explain something to me. I said, you know, you talk about emptiness. Uh, um, he would talk about emptiness all the time, you know, you know, emptiness, emptiness. And he'd be so happy talking about emptiness. And I said, look, I want to ask you something. Um, you know, when, when Buddhists talk about emptiness, it seems so serious and so profound and so solemn. You, know, you talk about emptiness and you're having a ball. You know, why is your emptiness so much more fun than, <laughs> than ours? You know? and, uh, and he said, well, you know, I'm paraphrasing him. He says, you know, if, um, if you have a very deep experience of of emptiness in the stillness, in the silence, you might get tricked into thinking that that's how you experience emptiness. That's really what emptiness is and, and all the world of appearance is just getting in the way of your true peace and, and, uh, and emptiness. He says, uh, my emptiness, my emptiness rejects nothing. There's nothing outside of my emptiness. My emptiness can have confusion and peace and joy and sorrow everything nothing is rejected from my emptiness and he laughed <laughs> i said ah, that's the kind of emptiness i i i need and want <clears throat> and i realized that i had set up in my mind 
this idea of what real profound connection is. It's not the absence of, of anything. It's the openness and contentment with things just as they are. That you don't have to get rid of anything. As soon as you can embrace it all and allow for it all, then there's the movement from resistance to complete openness. That's really what contentment is. That it's okay just the way it is. That it's all here right now. It's one of Joseph's uh, instructions to himself. Already here, he says. Life is all here. Can you fit more into this moment? It's quite full the way it is. And as you are allowing for the unpleasant, a contentment that includes the unpleasant, that includes the calaces of mind, that includes the, the, the lust and the pettiness and the judgment and the confusion and says, this too is part of being human. This is not mine. I don't have to take ownership of this and it's okay. And there's a contentment with the pleasant that doesn't want it any better. Turn up the jets. Let's really go for it. That just sees it's okay right now. Then the, what's there is a, a quality of true um, sufficiency, of real completeness. Develop a mind that clings to naught, the Buddha says, to let go of wanting anything else and seeing this moment is complete. It's enough. And any idea that it's not enough or that I'm not enough, that you're deficient or the moment is insufficient is dukkha. And that's why meta for self is so important in this equation that, oh, I'm enough. This is okay. This moment is enough. I don't have to get make it any better. And that feeling of completeness within yourself, within your own heart, actually um, extends to a completeness of the moment. There's a, a, a teaching by Zen Master Dogen. He says... Uh, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be intimate with all things. So we study the Dharma and we study this laboratory, this body and mind that we're given to study the self. And when we study it and see who we really are and that we're that we're okay on a relative level and it's okay as life moves through us, when we, are, when we really get that, then we're not preoccupied with ourselves. Then we have all of the, to study the self is to forget the self. And when we, we're no longer preoccupied with ourself, ourselves, then when we forget the self, we can be intimate with all things because... 
this moment we feel connected. There's no separation between us and others. And in that contentment with who we are and with how life is, there is this feeling of abundance. And when there's abundance, somebody who um, I respect very much uh, has this uh, great phrase that I love. He calls it the feeling of abundant enoughness. There's abundant enoughness. And when there is that abundance and abundant enoughness, this body and mind is okay just as it is and life is workable just as it is, then what spills over? Gratitude. Wow, how could life be so generous to me? How can I be so blessed to be able to not only be alive, but to understand that where happiness lies isn't where most of us are told, and to practice that gratitude, it overflows. And from that gratitude comes a generous heart. So it's, it's completely interrelated, this feeling of the moment being complete as it is, and this feeling of sufficiency, including self-sufficiency, that is that comes from seeing through the, the illusion of self and appreciating how it expresses just through you. And out of that sufficiency comes abundance, gratitude, generosity. Shanti Deva has has the beautiful line I love. I read it from an earlier uh, in an earlier talk about the miracle of awakening, he says that the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That when we are, when we truly get contentment, santuti, that instead of it not being enough, that poverty mentality, we're lifted above into the wealth of giving to life. Because then our goodness shines through and it touches others. It just awakens itself through others. And that means really trusting in life. Really trusting in the awareness that can open up to this moment. That you don't have to fix it. You don't have to rescue it. You don't have to make it better. That you can open up to the mystery of it all. So in that contentment, which is including not being content with, with our states of, of attainment, but seeing that it's onward leading, we can let go of needing to figure out the plan we're inspired to keep opening up to this moment, just trusting that the awareness can meet the moment and letting go of needing to know or figure it all out. Because 
in that contentment and that gratitude, there's a kind of um, awe and wonder. Just letting life reveal itself to you and just really learning to, to be here for the show and trusting that it will keep unfolding just on its own. So I'll, I'll read one poem to end. I read this a couple of nights ago in, uh, in a late night sitting on this capacity to let go and the, of wanting and the power of contentment from Dana Falls. Let it go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let it go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So let's sit for a moment. And feel this moment is complete just as it is. Thank you.